Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation today. I have with me Jeff Seckinger. He is the CIO and co-founder of investment fund Boron Digital based in Miami, which I'm pretty jealous. For those only listening on audio, he's got the bay behind him and it looks really nice. It's kind of a cold day in Nashville, so I'm jealous. Based in Miami, co-founded multiple successful digital asset hedge funds and has a financial consulting company named Zero Percent. Jeff, thanks for joining the show. Yep. Thank you so much, Brian. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you are one of these mythical creatures out there that got into crypto early. Mm-hmm. And everyone's jealous. And I'm sure it was a rocky ride, right? But not everyone appreciates the risk that you took on the front end. I mean, you're very much on the frontier. Can you maybe just kind of tell us the background of the story in through the lens of this, you know, crypto world that you live in? Yeah, on how I got into it. Absolutely. Yeah. So probably got into it for the wrong reasons in 2013 when I was in college. Um, there was a big, you know, I heard a lot of kids like in the, I was in a fraternity, first of all, a lot of kids were talking about like uh, this thing called the Silk Road. And then they were like, but they're using this magic internet money. And I was like, what is this magic internet money? And then I started to look into it and it was Bitcoin. And uh, that was when I first bought it in 13. And then I sold it later in 14. That was actually right during the bull market. And then I started to heavily get back into it in 17 when I was actually working for the biggest bank inside the United States. So it's, it's been something that I've monitored really from 13 all the way up to, into 17, and then started to take it as a, uh, a serious asset class in 2019. So if you're open to it, we'd love to 
get a little bit more detailed and granular on the first time that you accessed Bitcoin, maybe explain to people what I know what Silk Road is, but maybe not everybody listening does and what drew you to that. It's definitely not the typical story that you hear. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in high school, I actually got injured in football and they prescribed me opiates. I started to uh, take those as prescribed and it actually caused a pretty big issue in my life for uh, all the way through the end to end high school and then pretty much all the way through college as well. And that put me around the wrong people. Like I was mentioning in college, people were talking about the Silk Road, which is a black marketplace. You can literally buy literally anything on, on there. The guys now, you know, went into jail that started it. Uh, I think he got arrested, I don't know, a few years ago. But it was a, it was a really big thing and it made the news. And that's what actually kickstarted uh, crypto and Bitcoin, actually. And that's why there was a huge frame around crypto being just for criminals, because technically it did gain a lot of traction from that black market called Silk Road. And that was my first experience with it. And I was actually, I bought over a hundred Bitcoin in, in 2013 and it was $130. So that was my first experience with it. Obviously I didn't keep all of that. Uh, I wish I obviously would have, but that was like my first experience with it. And then in 17 and 18 and 19, I started to look into what blockchain technology is and crypto is actually a really bad thing, especially Bitcoin, because everything is transparent on the blockchain for uh, criminals and for uh, illegal activity to use because you can actually look at every single transaction on the blockchain. So the narrative around you know Bitcoin being a, a fraud or, or just used for uh, criminal activity, it's actually the worst thing you could possibly use for that. And then, yeah, like I was mentioning in 17, I saw that's when the next bull market was. So from 13 to 14, we had a massive bull market, went into a bear market for a year. It's usually three years of a bull market, one year of a bear market. And then in 17, when I was working for the biggest bank, I started to see that, you know, all these other cryptocurrencies started to come out. Like they had a hard fork of Bitcoin, which turned into Bitcoin Cash, Ripple, Stellar, Cardano. And then I started to do research into blockchain. I'm like, wow, this is a really, really big deal. I saw it grow hundreds of billions as far as the market cap was. And then I took it as a, uh, I started the first fund in, in 2019. So given the inauspicious origins you had with crypto, the context that you just talked about, what attracted you back into it in, in 2017 for the second time around, considering the experience that you had previously? Yes. I mean, that was when it started to take off. So I think the price action, first of all, got my attention. I mean, I, I had always been kind of looking at it as an asset class. And I've also always been a guy that is liked unconventional things, whether it be alternatives and investments. I've always liked things that are just different. It's, it was just something I was naturally gravitated towards. And I remember talking to, because I went into uh, school, graduated, got a you know finance degree, and then went into asset management. And it was always something that I had talked to financial advisors about, like, why not get some exposure to Bitcoin? And they were like, oh, no, it's too risky. It's speculative. It's a scam. Like all the, the, the you know, normal terminology that was used quite often in 16, 17, 18, 19 was used. And I was like, well, I think maybe we should consider this as something that could potentially be something big. And then in 17, when I started to see all these other assets come out, that's when I was like, okay, this is going to be a real asset class. This isn't just about Bitcoin. This is actually about blockchain and cryptocurrency and cryptography and how everything works together. And it started to click in my head. And I'm like, this is going to be a really, really big deal. And um, since 17, I've been you know, involved in the space every, every single day. 
Was there a moment in time, because you were working at a white shoe, old line, you know, Wall Street type firm. What was the moment in time where you switched away from what would be a fairly, you know, safe but lucrative job to going out there and, and diving head, head first into this crypto world? Yeah, I believe it was August uh, 18, I actually left the bank. And then we formally started to file in early uh, 19. And then we were set up in April 30th of 2019. So towards the end of 2018, I formally left to take it on full time. Right. But, but what was the, the mindset? Like, what was the thought process there that spurred you to take this kind of risk and, and to go out there and start the, the digital uh, hedge fund? I think the biggest thing was that that click in my mind where I started to understand what cryptography was and what blockchain was and how the two things work together and how that could actually be implemented in real industries and real business. And then that clicked in my head. And then once we you know, flew into a bear market in 2018, we went from you know, 19,000, it was like 19,600, depends which exchange you're looking at, all the way down to about $3,000 per Bitcoin. So it was quite a volatile time. Um, I knew that that was the right time to get into the market when everyone was leaving. I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to get into this because I believe in a long term. Now would be the time to start getting into it. And that's exactly what we started to do in, in 18. So uh, I, I just knew, I just had that gut feeling. Sometimes you don't, it's not always a logical thing where you're like, okay, I'm going to make XYZ dollars over this period of time. It was just really a, something that I felt naturally gravitating towards. And I had that gut instinct in me to tell me to, to go all in on it. So explain maybe for the listeners that relationship you just touched on between cryptography, blockchain, and how it interacts with this digital currency. Yep. So that's, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions is not understanding the difference between those two things. So blockchain is just a, it's pretty much an open accounting book that just stores transactions, right? So um, it does it in real time. It's unhackable thus far. And uh, it'll record any type of data. And primarily on Bitcoin, it's, it's typically transactions from people sending Bitcoin. It's actually uh, multiple transactions get tied up in a block and then that gets hashed together. We won't go into the technicals. And then cryptography is just the way to send and receive value that is encrypted. So it's just a way to safely transfer value. So the cryptocurrency is actually just the value transfer system. And really the, the railroad is the... Uh, blockchain. So that's how you, you know, cryptocurrencies is the value system. Blockchain is just the railways, and that's how you transfer value through the blockchain. So we've seen this analogy drawn many times between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and gold as a store of value. Do you think that's accurate in your experience? Yeah, I mean, as of now, uh, it's difficult to say that Bitcoin is a true store of value because it is so volatile. But how I like to mention this to people is it has all the properties that could that could potentially be a really great store of value long term. The problem is, is it's such a new asset class. It's just over 10 years old. And how I kind of look at it is like, there's going to be a lot of volatility. It's similar to uh, a young child, right? They can be an infant child is super happy one minute. They could be crying and screaming the next minute. That's exactly how Bitcoin and, and uh, assets behave when they have a small amount of capital in them. They can be very, very volatile because of the low market cap. But you know, I think long term, as more capital and especially long term capital comes into the asset class, it could be a tremendous store of value. And the the knock against Bitcoin and, and other 
cryptos as in terms of being a true currency is that it's not historically been a medium of exchange. Now that's changing with some countries like El Salvador and other places really adopting it. But do you see more adoption there? And, and do you see more transaction volume where you believe that it is actually a medium of exchange today? Yeah, the cool thing is, is there's this thing called the Lightning Network that helps Bitcoin scale. So Bitcoin's actually a really, really slow. It has a slow blockchain. It does like four transactions per second. To give you an idea, maybe you guys have heard of Solana it does like 65,000 transactions per second, right? So there's starting to be a lot of blockchains with scale. But Bitcoin was built obviously a long time ago, about 13 years ago. And it was built to really be what we believe, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto is, is no longer around. And it's somewhat of a mysterious uh, character that created Bitcoin. But we believe that um, it was kind of built as more of an, an asset instead of trying to be used as a currency. Now there's been a thing called the Lightning Network, which helps it scale. And that's exactly what people in El Salvador are using. There's actually more people there with a Bitcoin wallet than there is a bank account. So they can go to Starbucks on their phone and pay for a coffee with Bitcoin. And it's done in a fraction of a second, even quicker than a credit card, because it's being run through something called a Lightning Network. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Bitcoin evolves into a currency. As of right now, it's taxed as property in the US. And I see it more as you know buying property in cyberspace. That's what I really consider it. But you know, who knows? It could actually get some traction. I think El Salvador is going to be a huge use case. And now there's multiple other countries considering it. You know, Mexico and Brazil, uh, Rio de Janeiro just is giving their citizens discounts on taxes to pay in Bitcoin. So we're starting to see a lot of traction. And the Lightning Network is that thing that can give Bitcoin uh, the scale that, to be actually be used in retail. So I think it'll be quite interesting to see how that uh, you know is adopted throughout the entire world. But as of right now, I really consider it more of an asset. So given that context, you say it's an asset, we're going to draw that parallel to gold, which not really used as a medium of exchange today any longer. Given what's going on with inflation in America today, this is Q1 2022, inflation is popping for the first time in probably 20, 30, 40 years. What are your personal thoughts there? Does it actually act as a hedge to inflation are you bullish on it moving forward because of this hyperinflation environment we're running into? Yeah, um, I'm very, very bullish on Bitcoin and crypto. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, I think it's actually a bigger risk now to not have exposure to it than a risk of you uh, having exposure to it. I think there's no denying that we're moving into a digital economy. And also, Bitcoin is limited to 21 million Bitcoin, right? And uh, almost about 19 million have already been mined. And it'll reach that amount of 21 million by year 2140. So we've got a lot of time to mine the last about 2 million Bitcoin. But there's no way, there's no Bitcoin company that's going to say, hey, we want 27 million Bitcoin. That is not going to happen. We know for a fact that there's going to be 21 million over that period of time. We also know exactly how much Bitcoin is re released per day, which is um, really incredible. A lot of, even if you're looking at gold as a store of value, we don't know exactly how much gold is mined per day, but we can tell you exactly how much Bitcoin is mined per day. And we can see all types of data on you know, Bitcoin's blockchain through like a software like Glassnode. It's called on-chain metrics. We can see what long-term holders are doing, short-term holders are doing. If Bitcoin's being moved to wallets or exchanges, um, there's an unbelievable amount of data and all of it is pointing uh, to a massive price appreciation because 
you look over the last year and a half, a ton of Bitcoin has been moving off of exchanges into cold wallets where it can't be sold quickly, which is, uh, you know, obviously will help price appreciation as demand has been going up and supply has been shrinking because it's been moving to wallets. That's, you know, really, really powerful for price appreciation. So what are your thoughts about market cap in some of these cryptocurrencies? You know, ultimately, do you think they'll grow exponentially? Is there going to be a, a settling period? And maybe provide some context on where we are today versus where when you started in, in 2019, 2017, what that looked like. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it's grown tremendously. Uh, it was maybe a, a hundred billion, two hundred billion back then. Now it's uh, today it's just over two trillion. So it's actually and people hear tr- trillion, they think that's a big deal. It's that's absolutely minuscule. If you're trying to put a market cap on uh, storing data and transferring value, can you imagine how valuable that is going to be transferring value and storing data. That's to me, that's tens of trillions, at least, if not hundreds of trillions. And you would even know this probably better than I, the real estate market, I believe is over 300 trillion equities are over hundred trillion gold's over 11 trillion and all of crypto, which is about almost 20,000 cryptocurrencies is just 2 trillion right now. It don't quote me on this exact date, but I believe uh, the world economic forum had a big meeting. I believe it was towards the end of uh, 20, uh, 21 or towards the mid to end of 2021, where they were predicting just the um, the value of, of blockchain and crypto. And they were saying that it was going to be right around 12.6 trillion by a year 2025. So even, you know, some very reputable organizations are predicting that there's going to be a quantum leap in, in the growth of the uh, overall market cap. And I'm a believer for a whole host of reasons. But as somebody who doesn't live it day to day, it can be very confusing with the number of cryptocurrencies and the different types of coins coming out. I just did an episode with Keith Black from Kaya, which is a alternative institute association educational platform. They do really great stuff. And he drew an analogy of where crypto is today, which is similar to almost digital venture capital, right? Some of these are going to do really well, but many of them are going to be washed out very risky, right? So kind of like the dot-com bubble. Initially, everyone believed the internet is going to be a huge development, going to be change the world, but there'll be pets.com and then there'll be Amazon. Do you agree with that statement and lens of the landscape today? Yeah, totally. I mean, to be honest, a lot of cryptocurrencies are complete nonsense. A lot of them are just used as a way for, you know, people to pump price and, you know, launch something that's somewhat unique. Anyone can create a cryptocurrency in five minutes. That's you can literally duplicate code and create your own crypto in in five minutes. So that, you know, a lot of people don't realize that. And to be honest, I think a lot, the vast majority of crypto will uh, not make it long term. The cool thing is there's so much innovation in this space. And it's really cool to see these different types of sectors popping up in crypto. But yeah, totally. I mean, and even some respectable coins, they only have the only utility that they have is uh, governance. So you can actually just vote on upgrades to the protocol, which for us is not very valuable. We're more of like fundamental uh, asset allocators. We do have some like active trading as well that goes on, you know, in our funds. But we look for more utility in coins. We like to invest in a layer one blockchains because we can actually audit the blockchain. We can see if the number of wallets is increasing, decreasing, if their transactions are increasing, how many NFTs are being minted on the chain. And all those things matter because the coin behind that blockchain 
is used for the fee to pay for each transaction. So as a blockchain scales and it's being used more, that coin is then being used more, which gives it more utility. So those are like the type of things that we like to look into. And we like to invest in more of like the foundation of cryptocurrency, which is these layer one blockchains to help the whole space grow. But I will end it with this one point. I don't think that, um, you know, there's only going to be like three successful cryptocurrencies or blockchains. They're already starting to be incredibly interoperable, which means they're working together and you can bridge different assets between different blockchains. So I think it's going to get to a point where there are some absolute winners in this space for sure. But I believe that a lot of the blockchains are going to work together so seamlessly that, you know, it, general retail in the future won't even know which blockchain that they're using because it'll be so seamless. But yeah, there's a lot of noise in the space. And uh, I do think there's going to be a, a few clear winners. So when, when you talk about utility and layer one blockchain, could you maybe tease that out a little bit and define how you use those terms? Yeah. So a blockchain is what I was just mentioning earlier that records the transactions, right? It's just a protocol. And that's a huge you know, for your listeners too, this may be really valuable is understanding that investing into crypto is investing into a protocol, not a business. So we don't evaluate it the same. We don't look at cash flows. We look at um, transaction volume on blockchains, specifically if you're looking into blockchains, because again, um, it, maybe you guys have heard for some of you that have been in crypto a little bit of like Ethereum's gas fees. Ethereum has a really big problem right now because it only does 12 transactions per second. So it's becoming very congested because there's millions of people trying to use the Ethereum blockchain, but it can only handle 12 transactions per second. So it has a, a huge issue and that has increased the gas fees. And what is happening what, and what that gas fee is, is it pays, since there's no central you know, power, there's no company that has a building and fax machines and employees and all those things. It's just a protocol, which is a, just a piece of code there has to be something that pays for those transactions. So the ETH coin pays for the transactions on that blockchain. So every time that I'm sending crypto to someone else, or maybe I'm swapping for one token for another token on Ethereum's blockchain through like a decentralized exchange, like Uniswap, that uses a gas fee. Okay. And that gas fee is, is paid in ETH, the coin, which pays for that transaction to happen. Did that help, Brian, or was that a little bit uh, confusing as well? <laughs> no, it is. I mean, I, I think it's useful to think about these things from a context of it allows transactions to occur and there's they're an intermediary for certain types of marketplace transactions versus a, a Dogecoin or, or some of these other cryptocurrencies that have no utilization, just pure speculation, right? Which doesn't mean you can't make money. It doesn't mean you can't trade it but there's not a really underlying fundamental business there. That's at least how I kind of differentiate the two. Absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, and that's that's the cool thing about the blockchain is you can actually go look at block explorers online. You can just go to, you know, um, you know one is called blockchair.com and you can go look up a bunch of different, uh, you know, mainstream blockchains and you can look at how many transactions they've had in a 24 hour period, how those transactions are growing, number of wallets, uh, you know, you can see the top wallets and how much they hold. Like you can see pretty much everything as far as the data behind, you know, the holders, how many coins there are in circulating supply, all of that good stuff, which is uh, really, really cool. That's what a lot of, you know, financial analysts that are from the traditional world, they start to kind of understand that type of terminology because there's actually data there. But again, 
a lot of these other cryptocurrencies, they don't have that data to analyze. And you're exactly right. It's just a pure, you know, speculative play. So along those lines, you, you manage what I would term as like a, a, a multi-strategy hedge fund platform. What are you investing in today? What are the best ideas that you might have? How are you approaching the asset class? And, and just as importantly, what are some things that you're staying away from that you think are just noise and, and not good risk to take right now? Yeah, so we are a US regulated company. We only work with accredited investors. So we're very careful, especially about regulation. You know, we see some issues with some stable coins, some DeFi projects, but specifically uh, privacy coins. So privacy coins, like they don't, you don't have the ability to go look up who's receiving crypto and who's sending the crypto. And that really scares the government. Obviously, they want people to pay taxes. So we stay far, far away from privacy coins. One of them, the biggest one is uh, Monero. You may, you guys may have heard of, of that one. So that's one of the main, you know, sectors within crypto that we stay away, away with because there's likely going to be a lot of regulation over the next five years, and it's going to bring a lot of volatility and specifically to certain sectors. So that is one thing that um, you know we've been staying away from. And then number two, I would say, you know, kind of what I was speaking about when I said layer one. So there's a lot of like. Uh, prominent blockchains that have a lot of activity. There's then like layer two uh, blockchains that help the layer one blockchain scale. So they're interoperable and they have just better tech and they help that layer one with all the transaction volume on that chain. So there's like different types of layers of blockchains, but primarily we like to invest into layer ones because they create their own ecosystem. So there's a difference between coin and tokens. Tokens are things that are built on top of other blockchains. Coins have, have their own blockchain. So we like to invest into coins that have their own blockchain because we can audit the amount of developer activity on that blockchain, the transactions, wallets, all the things that I was mentioning. So our fund is a long short strategy. We believe that we're the best type of a diversification within crypto, but primarily we invest into uh, fundamentally valuable layer one blockchains. And then we're actively managing that against Bitcoin. So, you know, almost all of the fund is held primarily in Bitcoin and then some of the most prominent layer one uh, blockchains that are in the top 100 by market cap. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. So I don't want you to you know, give financial advice here, but today, February 2022, what's the percentage long versus short within some of these cryptocurrencies? Yeah, we're quite long on, you know, we're primarily a long fund. We'll always be net long in the fund because we don't believe that there's a time where we really want to bet against this asset class. And we do believe we're on the cusp of something really monumental within the investment world changing. A lot of businesses we believe are going to be removed by different protocols such as DAOs, um, which are decentralized autonomous organizations. We won't dive into that, but that they have the ability to literally replace businesses and organizations. It's going to be a, a pretty big deal. So yeah, we're primarily long. It's just when certain technicals present themselves and on-chain metrics, like I was talking about earlier, like one of the most prominent softwares is, is called Glassnode, super valuable statistics. When certain things do give us uh, signals and indications that there's more downside to come, we can 
uh, hedge uh, only up to 5% of our fund, we can actually hedge short. So we're never more than 5% of the assets in the fund short. And are there certain DeFi protocols that you're more excited about versus others? I mean, you know, you mentioned some of these issues with Ethereum, you know, Bitcoin has had, you know, similar challenges, especially from an environmental perspective. They seem to be the two biggest headline grabbers today. Do you think that would be the case in three to five years? Yeah, Ethereum has some big things to overcome, obviously, with the scalability, but they are implementing Ethereum 2.0, which is supposed to take place. It's likely going to be in Q3 of this year. So it'll be interesting to see how that rolls out. They're moving from a proof of work blockchain to a proof of stake, which is like a really big change. So that'll be interesting. We've actually decreased our allocation slightly to ETH just because of those types of hurdles that are coming up and have, you know, allocated a little bit more towards highly scalable chains, such as, you know, uh, we're big fans of, we do like Solana, big fans of Phantom. Um, it's a very scalable blockchain. The transactions have been, is over a million or a million transactions a day. Uh, there's a one called Harmony. The coin is one. It does uh, currently it's averaging, I believe it's like 3.2 million transactions a day. And the number of wallets is just skyrocketing. So yeah, those are just a few that uh, we have, you know, been keeping our eye on and are really excited about. But uh, yeah, we think that Ethereum has some hurdles to overcome, but if it can roll the changes out, it has such a large ecosystem. It's pretty incredible. You know, the amount of total value locked, which is another metric that we look at on, uh, you know, blockchain. So it's TVL. You can go into DeFiLlama.com and go look up total value locked. We like, we like to look at uh, ratios between total value locked and market cap. Um, Ethereum has uh, by far the most total value locked and they have by far the most uh, tokens and uh, decentralized applications built on their blockchain. So they have an incredibly strong ecosystem and we do think long-term they're going to do well, but it is something that uh, they do have some hurdles in the short term to overcome. What are the questions people should be asking you about cryptocurrency and digital assets that nobody does? Uh, primarily like what's the easiest, you know, way to invest, you know, we actually like to use the, the Warren Buffett uh, methodology of like, number one, let's manage to not permanently lose money. We know so many funds that have just over leveraged and just gotten liquidated because we've had two drawdowns of over 50%. And some of these exchanges don't have enough liquidity. So, you know, some of these positions can go down way further than you think. And there's just a massive wick that takes out a position. So um, number one is to not overcomplicate things. You don't need to over leverage. Um, you don't need to buy the next meme coin that's going to do a 100 million percent return in the next 60 days. It's good to bet on fundamentals and have proper diversification. I think that one of the easiest ways to do that is like I was mentioning, betting on the foundation. So like we like to, to bet on the foundation, which is the underlying blockchains and specifically like the layer ones, like we just talked about, we're big fans of you know, Solana, ETH, BNB, Luna, Harmony, Phantom, uh, Avalanche, those types of uh, chains. So I think it's really prudent to have some exposure to that. And then primarily, if people want to keep it super simple, you just, you know, buy Bitcoin over time and just dollar cost average. A lot of people try to, you know, they're, they're trying to trade, they're trying to use leverage, they're trying to do options and all this stuff. If you keep it simple, I mean, it, it's, it, it appears that the market cap is going to be growing quite dramatically. So um, I would say that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that people make is all, always feeling like we need to be doing something very complex. And if, if volatility really scares you and it's a, you know, an emotional 
you make emotional decisions with your money because of the volatility, it's likely something that you should look at, you know, potentially getting managed by a professional. <laughs> yeah. I've had people on the show, they, they say similar things to you, you know, investment professionals. If you believe in the industry, you believe in the space, dollar cost average and set it and forget it. And don't look at it every day it is, you know, mm -hmm. long-term, a good way to go about doing this. And famously Buffett's second rule is don't forget rule number one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Permanent loss of capital is different than volatility. And I think it's hard for, for investors to understand that concept many times. And it's not a loss unless you trade out of the position. So, you know, if you hold it and you believe in it, you don't need the, the liquidity, you know, you should be okay. But I agree with you. I think sometimes people don't think of it in the right context. So, you know, you, you've got these hedge funds. I'm, I'm curious you're you're actively raising what is typically the shift for individuals and families from the aha moment for them when you explain what you're doing they obviously are reading they're very curious about this but getting them to take action to invest and, and to go into the space is there typically a point at which they they kind of go over the edge and they decide yes I want to participate here I want exposure to this this asset class yeah, typically when they see a return, they're like, wow, yeah, I probably need to have at least some exposure to the asset class. But I would say also, too, like people need to realize and have some context. In the past like 15 months, that's been the first time that like true public companies have been taking positions as primarily an inflation hedge just with Bitcoin. And even uh, I think it was last week, actually, I think it was this week, um, KPMG uh, put Ethereum so ETH, the coin, and uh, Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So we're starting to see, and MassMutual has done it, MicroStrategy, Tesla, you know, some of the greatest hedge fund managers of all time. Ray Dalio is even saying it's prudent to have some exposure. We saw, you know, all the people that used to hate on it, including, you know, like Kevin O'Leary, he's creating WonderFi, which is like a DeFi platform that's specifically in crypto that gives, you know, stablecoin returns to retail people that are using his like bank account and platform called WonderFi. You're seeing Mark Cuban say, oh, I, he used to call it everything a scam. Now he's saying after he understood blockchain and cryptography and what's likely to happen in the future, he was like, uh, he just put out a statement that said all of his new investments, 80% of all of his new investments is going into cryptocurrency. So a lot of prominent people and very, I mean, KPMG is a top four accounting firm, right? Tesla's an S&P 500 company. It's a really big deal for these types of moves to be made over the past 15 months. And then people start to see the countries actually using it as a currency. It's pretty obvious the direction that cryptocurrency is heading. And I, I think once they start to see that, they, they're like, okay, that builds some credibility, that builds some type of interest. And then once they start to do the research, like potentially reading the Bitcoin standard and doing other things like that uh, to educate themselves, they start to realize that this is more than just uh, you know a coin that people use on the internet. This is something that can be considered a real asset class, and I should highly consider having exposure to it. There's another study uh, done by a very prominent bank. I don't want to quote the bank because I don't remember exactly which bank it was, but they stated that if you put 5% of your portfolio in a well-diversified portfolio, like a 60% equities, 40% bonds, you put 5% in Bitcoin. And this was a study I looked up in, in uh, 2019 when we were starting our funds. If you put 5% in Bitcoin, it would have uh, doubled the return and also decreased the volatility in the portfolio. So from a diversification standpoint, it's actually very important to have 
some type of exposure in crypto in a well-diversified portfolio because it is highly uh, uncorrelated to a lot of other assets. You know, even over the last two months, because there's been a lot of uncertainty in the market, there has been a lot more correlation with stocks. But primarily over a long period of time, over the last decade, it's been pretty highly uncorrelated, which is something important to you know, a traditional portfolio. So that's the next question I want to ask you. We're in an inflationary environment. It seems to be getting worse. And it seems like it is going to be you know, around for a while. Historically, that has been bad for stocks, bad for bonds, and pretty much good for everything else. What are your viewpoints on cryptocurrencies as a hedge against inflation? I think it's very important for a hedge against inflation. And the primary reason is, is somewhat of what I've already uh, alluded to a bit is just that we can tell exactly how much supply is coming in per day. And we know exactly where the coins are moving to because of um, on-chain metrics. You can go to blockchain.com and look up any type of transaction. I can see where I bought Bitcoin in 13 and where I sent it the following year. So I think it's incredibly important for an inflation hedge um, and specifically Bitcoin because we know that there's not going to be an increase in the supply. It also has the strongest computing network the world has ever seen because of the amount of people that have been mining for Bitcoin. So it's a very secure network. And it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a pristine asset, in my opinion. And I think it's incredibly important to have at least, like if you have, let's say you're trying to hedge you know, 20% of your portfolio, I think it's really important to have at least some of that 20% in Bitcoin, because uh, it is primarily being used as a uh, as an inflation hedge to a lot of these public companies that were just, you know, they, MicroStrategy led the way when they said, we're looking around, like specifically Michael Saylor, if you guys haven't looked up to him, go look him up on YouTube. He speaks very, very intel intelligently about Bitcoin. And he's a public company that started this massive movement where he said, I have $500 million in cash. And I know that we just increased the money supply 50% over the last 24 months. So what is going to happen to my 500 million in cash? Well, it's likely to go down in, in value, especially as the velocity of money picks up once we start to come out of this pandemic and the lockdown stop. And he said, okay, let me look at every single asset class and see where to put the cash because I want to preserve the value. And he understood blockchain and, and uh, Bitcoin and obviously did a ton of research into it. He used to kind of uh, hate on it, to be honest. There's some tweets quite a, a while ago of him hating on it. And he, he, looked from an unbiased opinion and he decided that Bitcoin was the best uh, inflation hedge over the next 100 years. So as it is, like I was mentioning, small market cap, there's likely going to be a lot of volatility, but I think you know it has every property that you would want to see as an inflation hedge because there's no central power that can just infinitely print it into infinity. That's um, obviously important if you want to hedge is to be able to control the supply. So I would say that's, you know, I think it is really, really important to have some exposure to it. Are you suggesting that central governments would just print money in order to solve problems without any repercussions down the road? I can't see that. Never. I, I would never state that. Yeah. When, when people, when I first learned about this space and, you know, adoption and, you know, to your point, real estate, such an old line business, people are talking about fraud and misuse and I said, you know, if you live in Venezuela, if you live in Turkey, you live in an, uh, Afghanistan and you want to conduct commerce, I totally get it. I mean, you cannot trust those central governments. They don't really have a Federal Reserve Board. 
you know, it's not a widely used currency. I think it makes all the sense in the world, right? And you can do it on your phone. I mean, this is what it's going to be. You know, it remains to be seen adoption in the US mainstream. I think it will take a while and the Fed's going to probably have something to say about that. But for a large portion of the world, this is going to be how deals get done, in my opinion. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's actually really sad. We're super privileged in the US. Yes, inflation just hit seven and a half percent. And it's likely a lot higher because the CPI, I think, is, is nonsense. I mean, if you look at this is uh, something that was from Crescat Capital, uh, I believe it was like a few days ago, coffee went up 92% in, in 2021, natural gas up 81%, crude oil 66%, used cars 45%. My car actually went up in value after I bought it uh, last year. Gasoline, 36%. The real estate market, I believe, is like 30% as well. Lumber is way up. So a lot of the things that you know everyday people have to use is skyrocketing. And then meanwhile, in the CPI, they have museum tickets and milk and all these things that I don't, I have, I haven't paid there. Another thing was a funeral. Fortunately, I haven't personally paid for a funeral. I haven't gone to a museum in five years and I haven't bought milk in six years. So like a lot of the, th I, the stuff in the CPI, I think is nonsense. I think inflation is higher, but I will say that we are extremely privileged and um, it's really sad to see people in Zimbabwe having to take wheelbarrows of cash to go buy a loaf of bread. Like that is actually reality. And this is something that, that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency can solve. For example, a lot of you know immigrants come to the US, right? And they'll come here, they'll work very, very hard. They try to send money home. There's 12 intermediaries in between them moving the money home and they get killed on fees. I mean, absolutely destroyed. So they could literally send the money home and have 50% less cash because there's 12 intermediaries. If they just send Bitcoin, they can have it in 20 minutes and they pay next to nothing. And that's exactly like a huge use case. It's just as we move towards more globalization, it's it's really a big deal. And also there's a ton of corruption in other uh, countries. And that, you know, I think blockchain technology is going to have a huge impact on that. For example, like titles that, you know, you you like real estate, obviously titles to the properties can be stored on the blockchain to actually prove the ownership of people that own property in other countries. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of corruption in other countries. And I think blockchain and crypto will have a huge impact on them. Yeah. A few editorial comments. One, <laughs> the Fed's talking about how there hasn't been inflation in 20 years. If you've paid for private healthcare, education, or housing in the last 20 years, you know, that's a complete joke. Um, the, the, the other one would be that I, I completely agree with, with your comments about repatriation issue people are are sending money back home and i think this will really be a big boon for them so i i agree with all those sentiments while we're finishing up here i'd love to get some boots on the ground commentary what's it like in miami right now just bananas it is insane so yeah i mean rent here has gone up uh, from everyone that i've talked to everyone that i'm close to up 30 to 40 percent just from the last year's previous lease, the traffic. So I'm, I'm currently in uh, one of my condos here. We have an office right across the street. Thank God I don't have to drive a lot, but there is the traffic is definitely picking up. I can tell that there's more and more people by the day that are moving here. Um, you know, I moved here with a few different entrepreneurs from out West, I actually moved from San Diego and brought all of our companies here. I just met with the mayor of Miami a few months ago. I was on his podcast as well. 
And um, it is incredible. I don't have all this, the stats for you, but absolutely insane how much tech companies, private equity, hedge funds. When I was trying to buy a commercial property for our companies, it was like these hedge funds are coming here and buying hundreds of thousands of square feet at a time. It is, it's, it's really unbelievable to see how, how, you know, business is picking up in Miami and how it's turning into like a tech and financial hub. So I I'm super blessed to be here and growing the companies here, but it has been um, truly unbelievable to see the, the uh, types of people and businesses moving here. And it's been great to network with, you know, like-minded individuals and people doing really, really cool things. Yeah, no, it's exciting. I mean, I feel like everyone I know from New York has moved to Southern Florida. And I'm sure it's a really exciting time to be down there. Jeff, I want to thank you for joining. Super interesting, you know, what's happening within the digital asset space. If people are interested in learning more about your funds or the the work that you're doing and just want to engage with some of the content you're putting out there, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on uh, social media. So if you want to follow me um, at Jeff Seconder is my name on, you know, Twitter or uh, I'm on Instagram quite a lot. YouTube produced a lot of content on there. And if you're interested and you're an accredited investor and in, in investing with us, you can text crypto. So C-R-Y-P-T-O to 877-771-0615. I love it. Jeff, thank you for the time. Wish you the best of luck. And hopefully we can uh, grab a drink in Miami next time we're down there. Yeah, we'd love to, Ryan. Thank right. you so much for having me on. All right, take care. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.